Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode, and I'm extraordinarily pleased today because I have with me Simon Moss. Simon is the CEO of IASD, and it is one of the most innovative companies around AI, but literally goes back kind of to the roots of what I see as basic computing. I'm not quite sure where we're going to end up on this podcast, but we're going to have a lot of fun getting wherever we get. So, Simon, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me. Thanks, Tom. And glad Houston is now 80 degrees, which you call the autumn. So, um, <laughs> yeah, glad you keep him cool. Well, that's before 9 a.m. But could you tell us a little bit about your professional background, Simon? Eclectic, I think is a good word. I think the police would call it spotty. Original Genesis, IBM, risk management. Prior to that, derivatives and pricing in foreign exchange. Post IBM, this was, you know, at the time when the internet took off, you know, got the entrepreneurial bug, brought in to run a company called Mantis, which was an anti-money laundering compliance company, which we then exited very successfully to Oracle. And they're still chugging away at Oracle at the moment. Retired, worked out the retirement is incredibly expensive. And I'm walking around home goods, realizing that I'm missing the view. And it suddenly dawned on me that I needed to get a job. And so he set up another couple of companies, turned it, you know, working on a public company in video communications. Oh, to have a pandemic 15 years ago. It would have been a very different company at that point. And then built another couple of companies, worked at Teradata. And then a Symphony came to me about nine, 10 months ago and said, hey, we've got this company called Yazdi, 10 years old, incredible intellectual property true pioneer, a true innovator, you know, you want to come in and run it for us. And so I've been since January running and refocusing the Yazdi. So that's generally me, not a technologist, more of a market facing individual, but you know, I, I've got a good smell test on, on the viability of technology and the Yazdi excites me a great deal. Simon, many of the listeners of this podcast struggle with not only the amount of data needs to be analyzed, but the use of that data after it's analyzed. And so I was really intrigued in researching you and the company for this podcast that one of the themes is or questions you guys pose is why can't AI keep up with the amount of data which needs to be reviewed for AML or anti-robbery, anti-corruption, now for many trade sanctions issues? What's the issue that you see? That's a complex question. So let's unpack it then. Number one, I, I disagree with you. You know, it isn't a question of size. It, it just isn't. If you look at the processing capacity that is available to business intelligence and, and machine learning and AI companies now, it's extraordinary. We're cloud native. We run on all three clouds. We run automated elasticity in the use of, of processing power. So it's not a volume issue, Tom. It's a distribution and diversity issue. The problem with data now is that it is so diverse, so distributed, and we're still trying to deploy products of extraordinary innovation, including AI products, in the same way as we did in the 1970s, which is we show a client, isn't this wonderful? All these amazing results. Look at this insight that we can create for you. Oh, by the way, here's a data model. Can you make all your data look like this data model, please? And then we can create value. And then that death march of data homogenization starts. And so at 80% of every single project, since the beginning of time 
has been spent in identifying, normalizing, moving, storing, and optimizing data into some sort of construct. Then you have these silly philosophical arguments between the enterprise data warehouse and the data lake, which frankly is irrelevant. What is relevant is that 80%. 80 cents in every dollar of every project dollar is spent preparing the environment to create value, but creating no value at all. And what is more troubling is that 50 cents of that 80 is an exact repeat to the very field level of at least five other projects that the company has done in the last three years. We have institutionalized redundancy in data management, and it is getting worse because of the proliferation of data sources. And so your second point is the data sources themselves. I think that we've made real progress, certainly in the white collar industry, in establishing data at rest or data warehouses in a way that is allowing data to be structured in a fairly good way, whether it's labeled or unlabeled. The problem is unstructured data, data in motion, compliance data, tick data, streaming data, but also data in use. The third category, the telemetry of data, how it's being used, what's the user doing with it. You You have to bring all of those together. And that's another very complex problem, which is undermining the traditional data management projects of the past. And I thought we would have learned these lessons when we tried to deploy CRM engines or when we tried to deploy big data analytics. But we still deploy these innovations in exactly the same way. Now, YASD is focusing differently and it's not in a YASD pitch, but we expect to, to, to deliver maximum insight at maximum speed. So we, we don't use the data model approach. As far as we are concerned, The customer's representation of their operating model is in their own data. So why not create a data model that is unique to the customer? And so instead of this Stalinist approach of this abstract and alien data model that we say, hey, we think your business looks like this. Please make your business look like this. Instead, we say, we think your business is represented in your data. So let's organically create a data model that is absolutely specific for you. And it's not alchemy, you know, it's not 100%, but it knocks 40 to 50% off the time to actually deploy innovation. The third problem you're talking about, though, is much more AI-centric, which is if you've got a lot of data, if it is highly distributed, the problem is that machine learning, just like business intelligence, is still hypothesis-based. It's still based on the intellectual horsepower or the subject matter expertise of the business analyst, or in this case, of the data scientist. But when you're dealing with pedophilia, when you're dealing with trafficking, when you're dealing with terrorism, when you're dealing with money laundering, these are not individuals that want to be seen. They don't want to look like previous behaviors. They want to look different. And so hypothesis-based machine learning is brilliant for finding a needle in a haystack. Really, really good stuff because you've got a concept of what you're looking for. The problem with crime, the problem with compliance, is you're looking for a needle in a stack of needles. You're looking for signal in the noise. And that's the big problem. And so the way we're trying to tackle it is to say, you can't start with a set of hypotheses because hypotheses are based on previous experience. But but crime is constantly dynamic. And so the breakthrough that Yazdida uses is what's called unsupervised learning as part of a machine learning process. In other words, we are not going to give the software a hypothesis of what to look for. We simply say, go find interesting stuff. Let the data tell us the story. 
find those weak signals, find those orthogonal relationships, find those attacks that are going to metastasize that nobody else knows about. Now, Donald Rumsfeld, unfortunately, called them the unknown unknowns, you know, but it's a very, very fair way to look at it. A business intelligence is looking for known knowns. You know what you're looking for. Machine learning is looking for unknown knowns. You've got a fair concept of what you're looking for, but you don't know where it is and you want to find more of it. What we're looking for is unknown unknowns. And our history in oncological research, our history in pharma research, our history of the intelligence community, and we're bringing all of that into compliance and financial crime. So I told you I babble a bit, but three things. One, it's not a big data issue anymore. It's a distribution and diversity issue. Two, the way that distribution and diversity issue is being tackled dates back 30 years and has to be modernized because it will constantly fail. And three, once you've got that, if you really are trying to find true value and true opportunity, you can't just base it on a biased estimate or guesstimate of your team to think this is what we're going to find. Unique alpha, unique crime is going to be discovered in a different way. And that's where we are innovating this blend between supervised and unsupervised learning, we're creating some very, very significant breakthroughs. Are you looking for anomalies, looking for something different, looking for something that doesn't seem or feel right? Or is that too simplistic a, an analysis? No, no. I, inference is important. Look, if I've got a money launderer and you know he is running against you know the, the rules of transaction monitoring systems you know companies like my old company mantis which is oracle uh, nice actomize baedetica sas fiserv you know they're essentially a set of rules these rules were built in the early 2000s and they're essentially a correlation or a codification of crimes that were discovered in the 1980s and 1990s but it's 2020 a nuance and a new crime and new asset classes and new collusion are completely outmaneuvering them. So what we're doing is, to answer your question, what we're doing is focusing on not deviations from expected behavior, because a criminal who deviates from the behavior that is expected or the role is an idiot, and that person doesn't exist. These are incredibly smart, very well-funded individuals that really know their stuff and really know the system and how to manipulate it. So what we're looking for is nuance. What we're looking for is weak signal. What we're looking for is connections that everybody else is missing. And back to your first question, we're doing that because we're looking at massive amounts of labeled and unlabeled, structured and unstructured data and allowing topological data analysis, which is one of the patents that we have, to build these connections. The challenge that we have as a company, to your point, is we do find interesting stuff. The question is, is it interesting to the business that is using our product? In other words, we may find some really, really interesting opportunities where a corporation or a customer is potentially going to default on a loan. But how do you route that insight to the right individual at our customer? And that's something that we're working on very hard at the moment to say, we want to maximize transparency in understanding the risks and the opportunities within the institution. But the insight or the yield of information that we create needs to be rooted to the right business as quickly as possible. Does that make sense? Because I don't want to ignore any signal at all in the customer's data. 
We want to create maximum insight. We just got to get the results or that insight to the right people within the firm. Isn't that the responsibility of the customer to take that information and get it to the right people? Oh, yes. There's no doubt about it. And that's a that's a tone from the top and a cultural issue as well, because, you know, lots of firms are incredibly siloed. There are Chinese walls between some of them. You know, financial institutions, I think over the next 10 years, the, the white collar industry specifically, not just financial institutions, are going to go through a productivity transformation very similar to the blue collar industry did in the early 2000s. You know, what was a Chrysler car in the 1990s? was built by around 50 people. It's now built by seven. That was all technology. It wasn't the Mexicans. It wasn't anybody foreign. It was technology that drove the transformation of blue-collar industry. We're going to have exactly the same in the white-collar industry. Well, why didn't it happen 20 years ago? It didn't happen 20 years ago because the white-collar industry worked out that we could reduce the unit cost of people that did the work. In other words, we offshored boatloads of, of work. That's beginning to change. As those economies prosper because of much of this, we're beginning to see the cost of the unit going back up. And so robotic process automation, natural language processing, and higher order AI is beginning to fill to drive that productivity back up again, productivity to cost ratio back up again. And so what we're envisioning, and certainly several conversations that we've been having with firms, is they're going to have to deliver a very digitally intimate very specific service to a millennial buyer, which is the biggest generation in the history of the world. They're going to inherit about $30 trillion in the next 40 years. The American Bankers Association said that 70% of millennials prefer to go to a dentist than go to a bank. So you've got a problem there. And they're going to have to do that service at a fraction of the cost that they do at the moment. And what that means is a very, very significant cost of productivity challenge that they have. So they're going to be looking at the middle and back office to re-engineer. And that means those silos that we're talking about are going to start getting merged. Why is anti-money laundering fraud and fraud different business units? The pathologies of both of those crimes are more or less the same. They interact consistently. And so you know, we're engineering our technology to make sure that we can service a customer expectation in the future over the next couple of years where they sit there and go, we have to optimize our middle and back office. We need to integrate all of this stuff. We need to have a true understanding of the behavioral topology that is facing our institution so we can maximize relationship and maximize transparency in crime. And that's what we're engineering against because there's no way there's no way the white collar industry is going to stay the same as it is with these waves of technology. It strikes me that the insights that could be generated are really far beyond the anti-money laundering, anti-fraud, anti-corruption, you name the anti-whatever. That really the insights that you can gain, you gave one example of perhaps a customer who's close to default on a loan, but it also strikes me that you could see possibilities of increases of business efficiencies. Uh, internal control efficiencies and processes leading to really a revolution in the way that this data could be used going forward. Would that be a fair assessment? Oh, yes. I won't name names because I don't like doing that, but I, I'll give you three different examples. We're working with one of the biggest telecommunications companies on the planet, hundreds of millions of customers, and we are down to the individual 
able to predict whether that customer is going to leave leave that firm for another telecommunications company with a 98% accuracy two weeks before they, they actually leave. We're working with a major retailer in which we've now been able to predict three months in advance customer sentiment to be able to understand, okay, just by integrating your know, information about the purchase of frozen peas and Adidas shoes and other elements to actually understand what's going to be bought, where it's going to be bought, and so they're completely changing their supply chain and their inventory management system out of the ins insight that we're creating. We worked with another bank in which we looked at their liquidity and optimized their liquidity that they generated over $100 million worth of additional profit through the insights that we created with them. The key here, though, Tom, is what we're doing is we're creating true alpha, we're creating true opportunity, and we're creating true transparency. When those decisions are made, you better bloody well know that the decision that has been created has all the explainability, all the referential insight that's needed, all the appropriate data so that when a regulator comes in and says, why did you do this? It's all completely supported. And that makes a difference between us and many others. I look at the AI industry very interestingly. It's really broken into three. You know, One, it's consultants. It used to be CRM companies, or, or then they used to be big data companies, and now they're AI companies. So oh, who would have thought? Well done, guys. That's great. Then you've got some, I think, true innovators out there, that, but they're putting very clever UIs and workflows on open source. And so they have yet to get through you know, the true challenge of innovation, which is, does this work at scale? Does this work with the level of concurrency and security and volume that enterprise customers who are the size of pretty large countries expect? And I think the jury is out on many of those firms to say it's a great innovation, but does it really scale outside the lab? Does it really scale outside the MVP? And then there are you know, probably two or three firms like us that have gone through 10 years of innovation. And don't get me wrong, innovation is not a straight line. Anybody says, hey, you know, we got together, here's a breakthrough, a lie into you. Innovation is an incredibly difficult journey. It is zigzaggy, it is falling off a cliff, it's climbing back up the cliff, it's realizing you're on the wrong side of the valley of the cliff that you've fallen down, so you gotta go back down again. It is incredibly difficult. And a Yazdi is a testament to innovation and the challenges that innovation is created, particularly in the bleeding edge type of businesses that we're with. The good news is we work with clients who understand that innovation is never a straight line and, and is always complex. We've been able to come out with 37 patents, customers who are running hundreds of billions of transactions through us every single day, and a product portfolio that we're incredibly proud of. So the challenge is absolutely not just looking for one unique indicator. The challenge is being able to, how do you optimize the operating model of an institution? And you do that by looking at the institution as a whole, not just crime, not just customer relationship management, not just alpha and treasury optimization, but how does that all connect together? And that's what we're really enjoying working with our customers at the moment. Do you have customers that are committed to that breakthrough, breakdown, disassembly of those silos? And does that really come from top management or is it something else? Yeah, I think it's an excellent point. 
the way we're evolving against the market is we still have targeted point solutions. Our anti-money laundering solution is focused at 100% risk capture with 0% false positives. Zero false positives. At the moment, the market is at about 98% false positives. We are focusing at zero. We have a project called Project X. We're not at zero yet, but we're bloody close. So, you know, we're beginning to really work with our customers on these specific business problems. But our, ultimately, the conversations we have with our customers is, you're gonna face some really big operational optimization challenges over the next few years. You're gonna need operational insight across all of those to be able to make the right decision. So you can manage your customers, manage potential exposures and risk, manage the optimization of, of your positions and your asset classes. And so I think everybody knows that we're going towards it. Do we have customers that are saying, yeah, we're going to break it down our silos now and we're going to optimize it? No, no. But we're engineering a company for the future, not only the future of financial crime, not only the future of treasury optimization, not only the future of under the digital intimacy that is going to be needed to maintain and grow customer relationships, but the operational diligence and deployment model that's going to be needed in the future as costs in these large institutions becomes, frankly, very rationalized. One of my observations about the coronavirus health crisis has been that trends that were sort of percolating along in 2018 and 2019 have now sped up exponentially, many times to the speed of light. Would the trends that you guys see in this operational insight across business units is that something that you guys is really speeding up now together with this greater efficiencies needed on the white collar side? Yeah, I, I think there's several things that are accelerated. Yeah, absolutely. I think the whole work from home issue and challenge has created some interesting questions around individual productivity, has created some interesting questions around specifically middle management. There are rumblings you know, in, in which organizations really are looking at saying, well, exactly how are we structured? And so I think, yeah, the rush to digitalization, the work from home changes, I think people are beginning to look at saying, oh, well, how does individual productivity work? And so I think, yes, some of those questions are definitely being asked. And it'll be interesting to see what happens. This is not a tsunami. This is not a wave. This is a tide. The topology of the market is changing. And so we're, we're looking at a slow consistent change over the next few years. So I think work from home is really the, the spotlight that is saying, okay, well, how are we organized and, and what's the productivity ratios of our operations to enable that to work appropriately? I think risk is another big deal at the moment, particularly credit risk. I'm troubled by the collateralized loan obligations that are in the market. So 2008, everything crashed because of mortgage-backed securities or the collateral uh, CDOs. Well, a CLO acts and walks and talks just like a CDO. The problem is the mortgage industry was about $700 billion in 2008, which you know largely defaulted. The CLO market is 2.2 trillion. And corporate debt or collateralized loans obligations has been the engine of economic growth over the last 10 years. It's corporate debt that has driven the US economy and driven the global economy. Now we've got very, very significant risks within segments of the economy, airlines, travel, entertainment, 
in which those loan obligations and that risk is increasing. And so the second thing we've got to be looking at hard is a contagion from credit risk to liquidity challenges within the institutions themselves, insurance companies, banks, brokerages. And then the third area is crime. Look, I'm amazed that we have not got the publicity that we should have in the market around PPE crime and fraud, stimulus fraud. I'm just amazed by it. We've thrown four to six trillion dollars, depending on how you want to work it out, trillion, trillion dollars of cash into the market. And this has been a golden age for financial crime, for organized and opportunistic crime. And we're not talking about some moron that gets a loan and buys himself a, a Lamborghini. We're talking about true structural theft of close to half a trillion dollars from the global, from the US economy. So the question is, who's responsible? Well, everybody seems to think that it's the US government responsible, but I think that we're going to get some decisions from the law courts over the next few years on who is. So I think that that's the other area that we're going to be living with over the next few years, particularly on the anti-money laundering side. I think there's been large amounts of takeovers. There are now large amounts of shell companies that are absolutely supporting you know, nefarious activities, but they look perfectly normal. It's simply because the control of those organizations were taken over during times when they were going through some significant distress. So, yeah, I think the entire economy is going to go through a very accelerated dynamic change over the next few years. And frankly, mate, I think our society is. I think that this COVID thing has truly allowed us to look in the mirror and see what are we as a nation? What are we as a system? Uh, you know, when you've got one individual that's going to become a trillionaire during COVID, when we got 45 million unemployed, I think we've got to ask ourselves some serious questions about how the system is working. But that's a Northern European socialist speaking for you. So I'll, I won't go there. Go Labour. Unfortunately, Simon, we're near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on Ayasida, where could they go? You got it wrong, mate. It's a Yazdi. A Yazdi. Yeah, it's Cherokee for search. So it's not Japanese. It's actually American Indian for search, a Yazdi. So a Yazdi.com, good website. I think there's a lot in there. There's a ton of white papers. There's also you know, a significant amount of collaboration to allow universities to be working on it. And our technology is used, obviously, with the genesis of the company was, was an innovation that we developed with DARPA. And so there was a significant amount of white papers, significant amount of information. And if you want to play with the thing, uh, you can install it in about a day and then just start feeding data into it, either on AWS, Azure, or on uh, GHP. Simon, this has just been a fascinating uh, discussion. Perhaps I can call upon you in the future to uh, find out where we might be. Well, uh, you know, I've been called a London cab driver because I got an opinion on everything, Tom. So you're always welcome to give me a call. I'll give you an opinion. Whether it's right or not is a completely different matter, but at least it's an opinion. Well, thanks so much. All right, mate. Take care. Thanks very much for inviting me. If you want to stay up to date on the latest innovations in compliance and help your business run more efficiently, subscribe to this podcast and help spread the word by leaving a review.